Hi everybody, this podcast is available with pictures. If you want to watch the video, head over to YouTube, there's a link in the description. Whichever one you watch or listen to, enjoy. Welcome to the Camera Channel Podcast. My name is Michael Sanders. Mitch Gloss has had a career as a DP spanning more than three decades. During that time, he's worked on everything from documentaries to feature films. In the late 2000s, he joined Able City as a solutions expert, where, through his online videos, he rapidly gained a reputation for being able to make difficult concepts, especially ones about optics, easy to understand. Over the years, Mitch has also held positions with Convergent Design and Panasonic. He recently created a course called The Secret of Optics, which is available through MZ, an online education portal for filmmakers. And I'm delighted to say Mitch joins me now. Mitch, thanks for taking the time to join us today. I suppose the first question is, how much do you think we as DPs need to know about optical theory? You don't need to uh, have like deep knowledge of algebra and you know the complex knowledge of like what a a triplet is and uh and a doublet and a spheric elements and you don't need to have all the a lot of technical knowledge it can be you know if you're interested it's great you know but what is really important is just the basic principles of how these things function so that uh you know you can do your work. And, you, and so when you want to try to make something work a certain way, you're not trying to kind of, you know, sneak your way around to it. You just know, oh, well, in order to do this, I need to do X, Y, and Z because that's how it's going to give me the results I want. If you understand the nature of what's going on with an aperture, then that's going to teach you not only about exposure, but it's going to teach you about like why depth of field happens and how that is controlled, not just depth of field, which is in front of the lens, but depth of focus, which is behind the lens. And most people don't even know what that is, but these are basic principles that when you understand them and how they function, now you can get certain effects. Oh, maybe I want to get something where I, I want to have a flare in a back in the background, and I want to see certain like like little star shaped pattern with that flare. Well, I know that if I use a lens with an even number of blades on that aperture, that means that as that sort of hexagon or octagon or whatever, however many blades it is, as that starts to close down, and I get that octagonal type of shape of a window that light is going to pass through if it's an even number of blades that means that the flare that comes off the edge of that little point on one side where two sides intersect in that particular uh, aperture if i have an even number then on the opposite side of the lens it's also going to be a corner and that's going to mean that i'm going to have bigger radial lines if i have an odd number of blades then where for every point that's at, uh, on one side, on the opposite side is a flat, is a plane, right? Because it's odd numbers, they don't line up. And that means you'll have smaller radial lines, but there'll be twice as many of them. One's not better or worse, it's which effect you might be going for. And that's like, that's a, a, a sort of an extreme weird little example, but 
if you understand conceptually why that is happening, then you can, you know, you start understanding just the relationship of, you know, how one thing affects another. And I don't need to know all the math behind it. I mean, I can get into the math if I want to, but if I understand just the general concept of why that's happening, now I can start thinking about other tools and how, when I use them, how it might get me to where I want to go. You sort of alluded to it there, but I think what puts a lot of people off on trying to understand optics is the complexity of the maths involved. It's just geometry. Okay, go on. They're mostly really simple, basic ge geometrical shapes. A cone, a circle, a, a globe, a, a rectangle. I mean, these things are all really straightforward concepts. And when you can break it down enough to a point where it's like, all right, well, let's just talk about this part of it. It's really, none of it is really com complex. Here's the thing. Do not try to understand all of Roman history all at once. <laughs> What's important is to understand this emperor doing this activity this time, and then this bit of history, this thing, this time. It's the same thing with lenses. If you try to understand all the optical theory behind all the, it's just going to become way too much to follow everything because it's just, you know, there's too many things interrelated or whatever, and you become the, the crazy guy with the conspiracy theories with little, uh, a, a, a big wall with like little strings attached from one photo to another. It's like I, all these things interconnect. It's like, you know, trying to get that mind, your mind wrapped around stuff. Not going to happen. It's what's important is to understand each piece of the puzzle that's all well and good but then when you think you've got a hold in it someone throws you a curveball like an f 0.95 lens which on the face of it should be impossible having a lens that is faster and so therefore brighter than the light that appears to be coming into it it appears to be brighter coming out that doesn't make sense on its face that doesn't seem like it's possible but when you actually understand what's really happening, yeah, it's just, you know, they're take, they're gathering. Uh, you have a really big front element. And you're just gathering light from all around. And then it's mechanically just ignoring a lot of stuff and, and, and concentrating it into a certain area. And then, therefore, bring it together. It's brighter. That's all that's really happening. You have to sort of push the physical boundaries a bit in order to make that work. And it can, and it, it can only be done practically up to certain limits before you're going to get a lens that weighs a ton or is physically huge, or you'd have to design it to work only with one camera because the rear element is going to be like right up next to the sensor plane in order for it to function. Or There's various things like that that can exist. Uh, you know, a, a zoom that is a true constant aperture isn't. What it is, is they throw away the stuff that you know where it would be exposure ramping along the way they just like all right we're gonna not give them that exposure ramp part of it that that you know when it would be a wider view and see we're just gonna make it a constant aperture because in the end that's what people they want to be able to zoom in and out and have it not change exposure so we're going to mechanically limit it so that we just kind of throw that stuff away it's really none of it is really com complex you make it all sound really simple and straightforward which I suppose is the point of getting you to do the course. This is why I started, you know, doing the doing interviews, doing things on the web, doing and created the Secrets of Optics course. If just 
so that it can help you understand what is actually going on here. You know, if I see one more time where someone has gotten their brain screwed up because of the way some manufacturer tried to explain crop factor and just really, it's like everybody watching this, lenses do not have a crop factor. It's just the difference between one sensor size and another sensor size. And it's that relationship. A lens has no clue. <laughs> It doesn't know, doesn't know what's behind it. It's just, it just projects light. It lenses do not have a crop factor. But man, so many times where it's like someone is like, you know, like I was gonna buy this brand of 50 millimeter, but then I read in their specs that it has a crop factor of 1.4. So I bought the Canon 50 millimeter lens instead. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> They were trying to help you with all this information, but they presented it in a way that just messed you up. And let me try to explain what the man, people get confused by this stuff all over the place. Yes, it's fairly obvious there's still a lot of confusion and misunderstanding. I mean, I still see posts from people wanting something that is physically impossible, like a Canon HJ22 that covers a Super 35. I mean, you can have uh, 22 times zoom that you would used to have on your two thirds inch sensors, uh, which are 12, is it a 12 millimeter, 13, 12 or a half, something like that millimeter diagonal or something like that. Um, and you're now going to go to what is a 28 and a half or, you know, now some 32 millimeter diagonal for a super 35 sensor, much larger image. Well, you have two choices. One, you make a physically mammoth zoom in order to gather enough light and you know be able to do the magnification ratio and such and you'll be able to then put the light image on onto the camera uh, or you do the a set effectively a similar size uh, or the same size lens and you just put on a, a rear elements on the back of it to then expand the image onto a uh, super 35 sensor and it's going to be much much darker because the laws of physics don't change. The geometry and the algebra doesn't change. If you want to have that same image cover a Super 35 sensor, that's a 2.7 times difference. The size of one sensor versus the size of the other, you multiply that by 2.7, you're going to get this one, right? It's the, the larger sensor. Well, all right. The Out of the back of the lens projects a beam of light. And it's gonna it, it's gonna be in the form of a circle because you know lenses are made everything round. I mean, you could chop it off and make it a square, but it's a circle of light. So you have the diagonal of that. You have the radius. You know how much is the you know all right. You know, I'm gonna make it. I'm gonna put it on a lens that multiplies it out, and I can expand it and you know and, and have a cover. And there are devices that are designed to do that. But what are they gonna also do if you take the light? and it projects onto this little surface here. And now you're going to take the same amount of light that what's passing through that lens, and you're going to have it go over a larger area. You're going to expand it, but it's the same amount of light you're starting with. It's going to be dimmer. It's going to be dimmer across that whole thing, and it's going to be dimmer by 2.7. All right, what does that 2.7 mean? Well, our aperture numbers actually have meaning. So 2.7 times, that's, you know, each stop is one one a doubling or a halving depending depending on the way you're uh, going uh, the amount of light so if it was a, a, a t2 lens uh, that it was delivering now it's going to go one stop to t2.8 two stops t4 uh, and 0.7 so about two-thirds and so it's a four 
and two thirds almost to a T 5.6 lens. Well, it's kind of four and two thirds. I mean, it's a relatively slow lens at this point, but it's only this big. It's kind of lightweight. I can put it on, throw it on my shoulder and run around and think maybe that'll work for you. If it doesn't work for you, I got to make some choices. I either have to make a lens that's much physically bigger, or I'm going to have a lens that has a smaller zoom range and therefore I can still mechanically build it to a certain size. Uh, and that's for covering the Super 35 sensor. If you're gonna go from Super 35 to full frame 35, now you, you've run into another problem because now you're taking the image size and you're making it that much bigger. Now that's a 1.77 or whatever it is, you know, uh, difference between Super 35 and full frame 35. Hey podcasters, Mitch has asked me to point out it's a factor of 1.5 between Super 35 and full frame 35. And now back to the rest of the interview. Well, you got run into the same problem again. Either you got to make the lenses bigger and fatter and heavier, or you're going to limit their range. And now you see lenses that are like only a, say a three to one zoom range, but they cover super 30. They cover not, uh, not just super 35, but they cover full frame 35. And if you want to have larger, larger range to it, well, maybe they're going to uh, lower the aperture some because, you know, these are the trade-offs you make. Talking of trade-offs, I find it really interesting just how much resistance there still is against zooms. But, you know, we've got lenses like the Canon 17 to 120 that are really, really good. There are several manufacturers. There's also some Fuji lenses that you put them side by side. If you don't know, you A-B test and stuff, you'll guess wrong. It is a form of, of snobbery and perceived appeal and such. Uh, but there are there is the aspect of people wanting to shoot, like, ridiculous ridiculously wide apertures. I mean, people will buy some primes and they'll never go above T2 on them. I mean, they'll just always be super wide open on them. And I guess, you know, it's a look. I mean, it's a little extreme uh, a look in my book, but, you know, you can't apply something to everything, but, you know, fine, they do. Uh, and then, you know, there are some reasons where people like want to be like super lightweight or small for like gimbal work or other things where they just need to have something physically really tiny. But, I am genuinely surprised that there's so much traffic in new prime lens sets being sold compared to new zoom lenses. I, part of it is because uh, while it's not easy to manufacture a prime lens, it's a lot harder to manufacture a zoom. It just is. There's more, there's more working parts to it and there's more complications going on when you start moving the lens groups around and stuff and keeping con images consistent and such. It's a more complicated device. And so it will sell for much more. And also if you're a new manufacturer kind of getting into that game of cinema type use lenses, uh, then it's going to be a lot easier for you to introduce a set of primes than it is, or a lot faster for you to introduce a set of primes than it is to introduce uh, uh, some zoom lenses and price accordingly, you know, how quickly you can get those things out and then, you know, uh, uh, then how much you might uh, try and sell these things for. So I think that's part of it is just that there's a lot of options that way because that's the industry, that's the world. I find small zooms to be an extremely convenient way to work. I know several uh, DPs uh, who like they're like, you know, a Cabrio 19 to 90 just lives on their camera at all times, unless there's some special shot that they need something else for, uh, you know, it's, it's about whatever works for you and stuff. But um, 
and it's about where your priorities go about, you know, how much the lens means to the work you're doing and the differences that you see in them. But uh, I find lenses, uh, zoom lenses to be extremely convenient towards being less of the barrier towards me doing my work. You know, I got a lot of other things I pay attention to when I'm shooting something, including, you know, the talent and what the director is saying and where I might adjust the lights. Uh, oh, and, you know, the AD on my back because we've got 15 minutes before whatever, whatever. So a lens can be, you know, I love lenses. I love optics, but I can only love them to the degree that they don't become a barrier towards the other things that I actually care about as well. Over the past uh, seven or eight years or so, we've started to see some new manufacturers enter the city lens market, and they're producing some really cheap prime lenses and zooms. Now, are they having to cut corners to produce them, and does that make them bad lenses? Are they cutting corners optically, technically? Uh, sometimes they are. Sometimes they're not. Uh, sometimes, you know, some of these lenses... Uh, are actually pretty pretty sweet. Sometimes they're answering requests. Why can't we have uh, uh, a set of prime lenses that aren't mammoth, aren't these giant things? They're relatively small lenses, you know, tiny lenses. So when I, because all these cameras now are so small, a little box, and I just want to have a little lens. I want to be able to have things that I can throw on a gimbal and move around with or whatever. Well, you're asking a lot of things from a lens. Well, what that meant they did it and they offer them there. And you have a, a couple of companies now, but I'm thinking of one particular, there's a Chinese company that's selling these lenses at a pretty revolutionarily in, inexpensive price, a pretty inexpensive price because they're doing, uh, they're planning on having a certain amount of volume. Well, there are some compromises that have to be made in order to make something really tiny. And it means that the wide angle ones have some distortion to them that you can, instead of, an image looking sort of flat, it kind of looks kind of curved, like a, you got a bowing to it. And that's because a small lens, a small physical piece of glass has to see a wide range around it, a large field of view. So by necessity, it has to have a greater curvature to the glass and therefore has to have a greater curvature of the image it represents. Because when it projects that then onto the sensor, it's going to be a round thing and it's going to curve it out. Well, that is a compromise. Everything is about design compromises. You know, it's like you want a little of this, we're going to have to take a little away from there. So that was a design compromise that they felt that they could get away with to a certain degree, because it's going to give you that field of view and it's going to give you a certain look. And maybe you don't, you know, if, if I'm pointing at a row of columns, you know, in a rectilinear kind of space, you know, like, okay, I'm going to see it. But if, in most photography, things moving around, am I going to particularly notice that a lot? Eh, maybe not. You know, maybe I really won't see it and I'll be totally fine with it. And I got the advantage of having this teeny tiny lens that I could do other things with. Maybe I like the effect. And I suppose that's really the crux of it, isn't it? Lens choice is so personal. There is no right or wrong lens. Some people want lenses that give a definitive look. Others want a neutral lens that doesn't color the image too much. And it might be what some people call boring. And other people might call, and other people might say, no, no, it takes away that, uh, you know, you can, there are lenses that like say, I mean, as esteemed as say Roger Deakins will say, like he has chosen lenses that basically he doesn't see the lens. It's like a window to the world. It's just like, you know, it, it takes the lens 
out of the way of the other things that he's trying to do. And so it's uh, just, you know, crystal clear and doesn't do any as little distortions of anything. It's the most corrected in every kind of measure you can possibly get. That's what he wants because then he wants to do, he wants, he just knows like, I don't have to think about that. I want to think about all the other things that I'm doing in order to create the look that I want. Great. That works for him. Someone else could be like, Oh, you know, I, I just, this lens doesn't help me in getting that feeling that I want to get at all. Other people, I think kind of take it way to certain extremes. I mean, you know, you can, have people who like to mug, muddy up lenses and do horrible things to them and whatever. And, and I'm like, at a certain point, it becomes like a crutch, you know, and one man's lens whack might be another woman's subtle touch, depending on what it is that they're doing. You know, it's like that, that might be just enough to help push something over the threshold of the feeling and the look they're trying to do, or it interacts perfectly with, some lighting effect they're doing or who knows what it can there it it is yet another cog in the machine i hate when people think it's the only answer just like thinking some magic lut is the only answer and that's going to just do it for me you know if i just use this lens that'll give me everything i need well no no you know you can use the best lens in the world which is where testing comes in isn't it because that's where you really get to see the differences between different lenses if you have command of what these differences are and you do understand what they're actually doing, that it's a tool like anything else that gets you that much closer to what you want. I will have people argue it with me endlessly, but if you want uh, an image that's a little bit warmer, start with a lens that's a little bit warmer. It's gonna pass warmer light through more and it's going to saturate the photosites that are red and you know maybe some green more than it will the blues and so it's going to give more information that then when the files are compressed or you know the the data is reduced to only 12 bits or whatever it might be you're going to throw away information you're going to retain more of that information from the get-go that you wanted that that was the look you were looking for rather than say oh well in post or even just in the camera right behind the the lens right in the camera i'm going to set the white balance over this direction and that way it's good i'm going to get my reds back well not if you didn't have that information coming to the sensor in the first place you can only get so much and so if you you know the more that you can help yourself from the get-go whether it's in the color of your lighting or in, in, in with anything within your lighting within makeup within set design within your lens choice the more that you can get things in the direction that you want the better off you're going to be because once it passes through the lens and hits the sensor from there on you are throwing away information and you don't get to choose <laughs> what gets thrown away it, you're going to be throwing away information left right and center and then if you're trying to pull something back or put something in there that wasn't there in the first place it's going to be harder or just it's going to fail so if you know that certain lenses have a certain kind of look to them. Oh, this lens is, has a really snappy contrast to it and, uh, and has the micro contrast in fine detail so that when uh, I adjust focus, when that thing comes into focus, it has a sort of pop, is a presence that stands out. Well, that's a certain look uh, that if that's what I desire, Gee, choose that lens. That's going to be the, that's going to give you the effect you want. Whereas if you want something that has a very gentle roll off, so that 
as you go in and out of focus, it just sort of softly comes in and just, it just slips away so that if I have talent of a certain age and they might try to cake on the makeup a little, but if they you know, a little bit of blotchiness in the skin or like, if I just saw defocus slightly, it, it feels, you know, you feel you're in focus, anything that's sharp, you know, it feels sharp, you know, and the edge of my glasses or whatever, but then it, it's a little softer on that skin tone and it smooths that out a little bit. Well, that helped me. And I'm not going to sit there and post trying to suffer away with creating some special window that softens it. I, I, I get there the fastest and with the most information in the direction that I want. And you can do that. There are these differences with lenses. It can be extremely subtle. And don't ever think that one lens is going to get you everything you ever want, this perfect lens, because what you might want on one day is the opposite of what you might want on another day. Another aspect of lenses I think it's worth touching on, and one that does spark a lot of debate, is autofocus. Where do you see that technology going? Um, I will say that autofocus, because it's been getting so damn good, I mean, it really, uh, you know, the the times per second that it's updating and reading things, you can get now accessory items that attach onto your camera. You could, you could get, get these for a long, long time, but now you can get them that are very inexpensive uh, that you know will mount onto the camera and then attach to your lens and it will act as a autofocus system. Um, they're never gonna be as fast as a truly integrated system that's in the camera and the lenses that are designed to mate to that because they're just, they're engineered to work quickly and effectively to one another. But as much as a manual transmission can be fun on a car and you have a sense of control, an automatic transmission most likely is going to do the work that you need it to do, even on somewhat trying situations, probably 90% of the time, if not more. It's going to do the job better. Uh, and because of that, that's an indication where, you know, everyone talks about in autofocus, they're like, well, what if I want to have a selective focus of thing or like the character is going to come into the side of the frame and the it's like, well, turn it off for that shot. You know, go ahead and use the control the thing you way you want. But for the vast amount of time, you're gonna. It's actually going to do this job for you, and it's going to do it really well. I'm waiting for the more advanced interfaces to these autofocus, as opposed to just letting them do it truly automatically. I like the semi-auto autofocus systems where you'll have a screen. And it'll have a little box around things or whatever, or even if the box doesn't show up, you can, you know, tap your finger onto something and then you can move it to the thing. And you can then have a separate slider of like saying like, how quickly will it track from this focus to the focus on that one? And you can feather that as you wish and stuff. The, as we get into that level of control, and there's also going to be, you know, predictive uh, technologies that will be automatic that will do this stuff as well. But as you get into that nuanced level of control, it's an incredibly powerful system and, and it's gonna be an expectation. The bad thing is that sometimes because it's a system that's designed to really be used for it, then it's a little clunky when you're in a manual mode. And that I feel again is with time, they'll make that better so that when you wish to be in a manual mode, it much more emulates the, direct connection that we are used to having for our manual control of things. But, uh, and it's been improving, but um, 
Yeah, autofocus is a great tool, like many other things are great tools. And, you know, and, and it's in its proper environment, it does a really good job. Mitch, that seems like a great place to leave it. Thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you for having me on. This has been fun. I always, I love talking about this stuff. And that's it for another edition. Thank you for joining me. Do let me know what you think, either on Twitter, Facebook, or just drop me an email. I'll be back soon, but for now, thank you for watching and goodbye.